I'm Steve Sims, and this is Win the Day with James Whitaker. You're listening to Win the Day with James Whitaker. What we do in life echoes in eternity. Broadcasting from Los Angeles, California, here's your host, James Whitaker. Let's go! Hey, winners, welcome back to Win the Day. If this is your first time here, we sit down with some of the world's true change makers to give you all the tips, tools, and strategies to win the day every day. The quote for this episode is one of my all time favorites and comes from hockey legend Wayne Gretzky and says, You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. It's the exact philosophy of how I live my life, and it's been exactly the same for our guest today, too. Steve Sims is a unique individual and a master at making the extraordinary happen. Growing up in East London, Steve began his career as a bricklayer but grew tired of the long hours and low salary. He committed to surrounding himself with people who had more money and were having more fun, and that's exactly what he did. As his network expanded, Steve eventually went on to start his own luxury concierge company, Bluefish, that made once-in-a-lifetime experiences happen for the rich and famous. He's organized private dinner parties at museums in Florence with Andrea Bocelli as the guest tenor, sent people down to the wreck of the Titanic, and brought guests on a private tour of SpaceX led by its legendary founder, Elon Musk. As a speaker, Steve has presented to Harvard and the Pentagon. He's worked with pretty much anyone you can think of, from Elton John and Richard Branson to Donald Trump and the musician Sting. He's also the author of multiple best-selling books, including his latest book, Go for Stupid, which is sitting right in front of us, which I included in my best book list of 2022. In fact, it's that Go for Stupid mentality that's contributed to all the success he's had today and what we're going to take a deep dive into throughout this conversation. We'll also go through his journey from Brooklyn layer and bouncer to becoming friends with mega celebrities, how he's been able to make the unique and seemingly impossible experiences happen, and how you can use the go for stupid mentality to big success in your relationships and your career. Steve's not an easy man to introduce because he's done so much, but that's going to give us the recipe for an incredible conversation. Before we begin, as always, the right bit of inspiration can completely change the trajectory of someone's life. So if there's a friend or a loved one out there who needs to hear this episode or could use some help to win the day, share it with them right now. All right, let's Let's win the day with Steve Sims. Steve, great to see you, mate. Thanks for coming on the show. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, is that all you got on your resume? You couldn't have done a bit more in your life? Pretty shit. Isn't it? Pretty <laughs> shit. I, I, I like being lazy. <laughs> what was what was the mindset around entrepreneurship in your household growing up? It didn't exist. Mm. Um, you know, I was a I was a sixty six baby. Um, so my parents came from parents that had just suffered the war. Mm. So the mindset was basically get a job, work your way up, and then retire. That was it. And we all know back in the in the seventies, eighties, and nineties, if you were an entrepreneur, mm. that was code for the fact that you couldn't get a real job, and you were probably selling stolen car stereos out <laughs> of back of your car. You know, entrepreneurism was not an an endeavor that garnished any mm. respect. Now. The bloody rock stars. <laughs> but back then, it didn't exist. If you were an entrepreneur, something was wrong with you. Mm-hmm. And so my parents were very much of the <coughs> get a job, settle down, you know, work your way through, get a pension. Basically, everything that their parents had told them. Um, but entrepreneurs, we're a little bit different, aren't we? Yeah. And I was aggravated, and I was pissed off. And I was like, why? Why has it got to be? And that's what entrepreneurs do. Mm. We just get aggravated until we find something, then we find a solution, then we find other people that have got that problem and sell that solution to them. That's what an entrepreneur does. So I don't think it's a case of, you know, when did you discover you were always an entrepreneur or you weren't? 
and I came from a big family with uh, cousins and stuff like that. And I was the only person that really had that aggravation. The rest of them just wanted to sell. Mm. A huge turning point for me was when I moved from Brisbane in Australia, where I grew up for the first 28 years of my life, over to Boston, Massachusetts, about as far away from Brisbane as you could get. And that is where I first saw entrepreneurs, people who were my age and younger, who were doing cool things. They were pitching ideas. They were raising money. It was around the time that um, Uber existed, but there were a lot of competitors out there trying to do the same thing. And being around entrepreneurs, I, I just, I honestly, I just never knew that it was possible because I had a traditional path in, in mind because of the city of, of where I grew up. When did you first gain access to real entrepreneurs and when did you believe that that was actually possible for you? This is your show, so I have to be polite, but I'm going to call <laughs> that. Yeah, go for okay? it. You see, something funny happens to us. When we look for something, we see it. You left Brisbane and you came over here and all of a sudden you were you, your eyes were opened up to something. But you travelled that far to find it. I wouldn't be surprised if it was all around you, but you just weren't open to seeing it. Mm -hmm. But it took that to move. Same thing happened for me. I left the UK. I had a job in Hong Kong. And I literally went that far, failed at a job. But now because my mind was open to it, that's all I saw. I actually wrote an article in this book on, on the colour of the car. You may have read that, that part in there. Have you ever been in a car park or in a dealership and there's a car there, and it's, it's a funky colour. It's an orange, it's a blue, a purple, whatever. And you walk past it and you go, well, that's a weird-ass car. You know, I haven't seen that colour before. And then you get in your car and you drive home. And on the highway, what's the only colour of car you can see? <laughs> you see dead of them on the way. When your mind's open to something, that literally is all you can see. Now, you came all the way over here going, I want to find this, and da-da, it appeared. You know, I think things happen when we actually search for them. For me, it was that aggravation. I had to find something. I'm sure shit, there were successful people around me, mm -hmm. but I wasn't in them. I had to get out of that sandpit. I had to break that tie. I had to go out and find it. And, of course, I found it by starting off in Hong Kong. But I'm sure as hell for people out there thinking, oh, my God, do I have to leave my country? No, maybe you just have to open up your mind to be able to see what you're looking for. Yeah, it's so true. In fact, actually, when I went back to Brisbane, you know, I was traveling back there a lot, but when I went back there sort of six or seven years later after I dabbled in a whole bunch of entrepreneurial things, mm -hmm. you're 100% right. There was a massive entrepreneurial culture bubbling under the surface, and I just wasn't aware that it even existed. We've got to be open to it. We've got to yeah. see what we can see. I remember a, a friend of mine, he's departed but will never leave, a guy called Dr. Sean Stevenson. And he used to turn around and everything that ever happened to him. And the, the lad had a body that was busted up, sitting on a wheelchair all his life. You know, he had every reason to complain. One of the funniest, sharpest dudes on the planet. And he always used to say, whatever happened, he would go, hey, was this done for me or was it done to me? And just, just having your head question that allows you the ability to go, oh, this was good. Because I guarantee you, anyone listening to this podcast, especially us, We've been through the shitter, you know, we've been laughed at, sued, ripped off, poked fun at. It's just what happens to entrepreneurs, okay? And in every single one of those moments, we go, oh, my God, this is terrible. Until a week later when you go, that was actually probably the best thing that ever happened to me. I know of contracts that I lost that I cried myself on that first night only a week later go, bloody glad I dodged a bullet with that one, you know? Glad I didn't get into a relationship with that fella. All of these things happen, and it's that, it's that ability to reframe what goes on before it happens 
or after it happens that actually enables you to take the gold out of it. Yeah, it's so true. Uh, stop judging events as they happen. Oh, yeah. yeah. The trouble is how you react to it is how are you going to dictate it's received. So if you look at something as a bad scenario, guess what it's going to be? Mm. The classic, if you believe you can't, you're right. <laughs> so you've really got to start opening up your mind to what is possible and plausible. What's the best way for you to learn? If there's a new skill you want to develop or, or knowledge that you want to have, uh, what do you do to understand that, to, to make sure you acquire that mastery? So I don't want – so the, it's the classic, if you don't use it, you lose it. And your, your brain is a muscle. And if you don't feed it and get it working, it's just going to fall into a sequence of, oh, this is what's normal. You know, I'm going to handle this life because, eh, it doesn't ask much of me. And I wanted more of it. So I was always pushing myself, how could I do it? Now, the funny thing is, we dream and we're curious as kids, and then it's beaten out of us as teenagers. You know, have you got kids? Mm -hmm. Got two. How old are they? Three and one. Three and one. All right. So up until the age of five, they're going to strap a towel around their neck, and they're going to jump around the room going, (laughs) I'm a superhero, Dad. And as a parent, and i got three kids, you know, as a parent, you go, yes, you are. You can be any. You're what superhero are you? I'm Space Boy. Good for you. And they get to 12 and they're doing that, and we tell them to grow up, don't be stupid. We stifle the creativity. We stifle the curiosity. We stifle the imagination. But if we don't, that's where the real power is. Mm. So you've got to start retraining your mind back to being a five-year-old. My wife always says, I'm a 55-year-old five-year-old, <laughs> right? Which is really good because I'm 56 now. But <laughs> that's what she always said because I'll always look at it like a child. I'll always look at it with curiosity. And some of the most impactful people that I've been able to work with and communicate with, uh, Larry Page, Bill Gates, uh, Elon Musk, especially Richard Branson, Jean-Paul de Jouria, they are all curious kids. And they want to know how that works, and I want to pull the back off of it to see what it's doing. And they've got that curiosity. So one of the ways I got that back was to start acting like a child. You know, the whole the name of the book, Go For Stupid, that was a, a terminology that we used to use 18 years ago. We would get someone come to us going, hey, I want two front row tickets at a concert. And we'd go, okay. And then we'd sit down around the table with all the crew and we'd go, how can we make that request stupid? You know, how can we go silly with it? Now, here's the funny thing. If I say to you, all right, I want to do this, and we turn around and go, how can we make that impossible? How can we make the impossible possible? We're going to break through that. And then I turn around and I look at this and I go, well, how can we make that stupid? How can we actually make this ridiculous? Now, here's the thing, and this is what I want you to do, and I want everyone watching this to do. I want you to rewind the last 10, 15 seconds. Because when I spoke to you about being impossible, do you know what you did? Mm. You gritted your teeth. Mm. I'm going to make the impossible happen. I'm going to make it possible. I'm going to do this. You do this. You tense up. You Mm. constrict. But when I say to you, let's make it stupid, you go, oh, yeah. (laughs) You did that. I challenge everyone. Look back 10 seconds. Every time I uh, play that with someone, they do the same. When we actually have a goal, and we make it a stupid, ridiculous, audacious goal, we smile, and then the new ones click in, we become a kid. Wow, we're going to have fun with this. <laughs> what can we disrupt? And that's what happens. So the way to actually train your mind, and it's really easy, anyone that's got one of those like uh, web tuners, 
for radio stations. Pick a different country, a different type of music, listen to it for an hour. When you're driving home and you turn right, turn left, go through the back road and then find out that little street that you never saw before. And here's a classic one. When you go out for dinner, we always we always buy like the first one or two appetizers that we used to have it. You know, we love potato skins. We love, you know, spring rolls. Yeah. Pick something you've never had before. So what we used to do was we used to pick an appetizer that we knew and we liked and something we had no idea of. I was gambling on three, four, five dollars of an appetizer. Now I can tell you, especially if you travel to Japan, <laughs> you'll have some of the weirdest things in the in the world. Don't even tell me what it is. Yes, <laughs> just I have eaten things before and gone, oh, my God, how is that a food group, you know? <laughs> but the trouble is your your mind gets used to, okay, mm. we do things differently now, you know? And I remember my kids always used to complain. They always just be like, why can't we just get the usual two that we like? Now, now they're in their teens and their 20s, they're like, well, I get to pick. that. That's weird. I'm getting that. And it trains you to accept different things. And again, just like your travel, when your mind suddenly starts listening to different radio stations, be prepared that you're going to turn left rather than right. Go and watch a movie that you have no normal uh, relevance to whatsoever and eat in something you never would have normally. Your head goes, well, it does things differently now. Mm. And it's like that purple car. Wherever you travel, it suddenly starts going, right, well, we're the kind of mind that looks for opportunity now. Where is it? Mm. And when you're open to opportunity, what's the only thing you see? Mm. I think one of the best things about having kids is it, it makes you like, you know, it gives you like a blank uh, canvas, a clean slate all over again for you to appreciate all these amazing things that are, that are happening in the world. So reframing that word impossible to stupid, something that you can actually have fun with makes possibility come true. You're almost connecting more dots from a blank canvas to elevate your idea of what's possible and give you the best chance of being able to execute on that. Yeah, you can actually steal from your kids, which is great, because you can see their innocence, you can see their ignorance, and you can go, I'm having that. You know, why, why am I doing it like this? Oh, I know why I'm doing it like this, because my parents and the guy that used to employ me when I was 17, he always told me that's how it had to be. And then you realize it doesn't have to be that way. And I always remember, again, having conversations. I was up in Tesla with Elon Musk. And uh, he said, we never look at the problem. We understand why the situation's there in the beginning to create that problem. It's the classic that everyone's out there throwing oil on the squeaky wheel of a, of a wheelbarrow that they don't use. Mm. Instead of replacing the wheelbarrow, uh, the wheel, lose the wheelbarrow. You know, so there's a different context and parameter of the way you can reframe things. And it, it does take a little bit of effort, mm. but then it becomes a habit. It's like everything, isn't it? When you start getting into it, when you start eating healthier, when you start living better, when you start demanding more, then all of a sudden your life starts changing. You go, well, hang on a minute. I like this. And so it's a great habit to, to get into. Was there a tipping point for you with that go for stupid mentality where you were like, wow, I cannot believe the momentum I'm establishing with this. I've got to step it up and see where it takes me. There was no stepping it up because I was always ignorant. Um, I remember that I had been doing – see, you've you got to understand, I never wanted to launch a concierge firm. You know, dumbest idea in the planet. If podcasts had been around in the 80s and the 90s, shit, I'd have gone down that route. Mm -hmm. But I knew – 
that having a conversation with a poor fellow at the bar was useless because I was poor and I knew those conversations never got anywhere. So I didn't want to talk to a poor person. Why would I? I wanted to talk to a billionaire. I wanted to talk to a billionaire and go, how come you're a billionaire? I'll get up at four o'clock in the morning. I'll go to bed at one o'clock in the morning. I'll do anything necessary. How come you're a billionaire and I'm not? And I wanted to have those conversations. So I always used to say I was not in the business I was in. The business I was in was to have a conversation with affluent people. And I've had conversations with people that own things like countries. And I, that was my business. Hey, if you, want a, if you want a drum lesson with Guns N' Roses, if you want to go and see the Titanic, if you want me to shut down a museum in Florence to get on Dre Bocelli, the serenader, while you're munching your pasta, <laughs> so be it. But then in two days' time, me and you are going to sit down and we're going to have a conversation. That was the business I was in. I wanted to find out why that was going. So I remember doing that, and I always used to say to Claire, my wife, and we've been together since we were like 16 and 17, and I always said to her, I know I don't have a stable job, yeah, and you always – entrepreneurs, we're always defensive, aren't we? <laughs> we leave a 40-hour job with regular weekly pay working 200 hours a week <laughs> with irregular pay, you know? We're not smart, um, but we need to be in control. And you find yourself being defensive. And I would always say to Claire, who was never panicked, I'd say to her, don't worry, you know, I'm doing this, so I'm going to have one of these – and, and, and then I'm going to end – and I'm going to get a real job. And I was about eight years into it, and I got this uh, I got this deal with this little-known car company called Ferrari um, in Monaco for the Formula One Grand Prix. And I said to Claire, don't, don't worry, everything's going well. You know, I'll, 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 once this is done, and you'd always say, once I'm over this event, once I've done this, once I've finished with this place, then I'll get a real job. And I said this to her, and she turned around and she said, you know you've had a real job for eight years now. You're the go-to guy for billionaires all over the planet. You know, we've never missed a rent payment. We fly around the planet in first class. You know, you do understand that you created the job that you're actually looking for. And I was like, oh, I didn't realize that. And, of course, like when that happens, all of a sudden you do what all entrepreneurs do with a good thing. You screw it up, you know. <laughs> and I started can I go, oh, I better – I better look a certain way. I better can I speak a certain way, you know. And so you take I, away the child mentality and you move to more of the adult one. You do. And so I completely and utterly ballsed it up. <laughs> and I spent probably about a good 18 months um, screwing up everything that was gold. <laughs> and then I got it all back again, thankfully, and uh, got back to the, the, the innocence and the ignorance of asking the questions and going forward. But that was really it, really understanding that um, – once I'd got to where it was, then it was a case of, well, okay, and I've got over my silly screw-up stage. I pulled that off. Now where can we go? Mm -hmm. And I remember, and this was a, a story, um, I think I may have mentioned it in here. I, I don't think so. But I tell the story in the book about when my client wanted a dining experience in Florence, and that's all he asked me. And I ended up shutting down the Academia de Galleria, which is the – world-famous museum that houses Michelangelo's David, and at 9 o'clock at night, setting up a table of six at the feet of David, and then halfway through having Andre Bocelli coming in and serenade him. Big deal, kind of bloody cool. And um, I pulled all of this off, and I was in Rome at the time. And so I'd gone down to Florence. I only had two days to pull this off, so everything just landed. And when you push yourself, it's amazing what happens. So in two days, I pulled this thing off. And I'm sat there on the Wednesday night, it's about 7 o'clock in the evening, and I'm next to Andrea Bocelli in my own museum. 
no one else in the museum apart from us. And, uh, you know, I'm just chatting away to him, and Veronica was there as well, his wife. And literally, I can't overstress it, my body just went into a cold sweat. I just literally went, oh. And, you know, when they always say someone's walked over your grave, you know, and I just, it just went through me. And I was shoulder to shoulder with Andre, and he's blind, and he could feel me move. And um, he said something to Veronica, and Veronica let know, and she went, are you okay? And I said, do you know, it just suddenly occurred to me where I was and who I'm sat next to for what purpose. And I can't believe it. You know, and it was that little kid in East London going, Look at this. And so I've always tried to stop and smell the roses and to look around. But I've, I've been in situations before and I'm just like, how the hell is this happening? And all entrepreneurs, we all get that kind of imposter syndrome, don't we? Kids don't. Mm-hmm. Kids couldn't give a shit. You introduce a child to Elon Musk, he's going to go, hello, show me a rocket. <laughs> he ain't going to give a shit. Show a 40-year-old guy trying to grow his business to Elon Musk, he's going to crap his pants. Be terrified. Yeah, terrified. <laughs> so I, I've always tried to be that 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 childlike mentality with things. And I often joke with my wife that I'll grow up one day and she knows I'm lying. <laughs> There's a, one of my favorite quotes is action is the real measure of intelligence. It's a Napoleon Hill quote. I think it's fantastic. It goes very much hand in hand with the Wayne Gretzky quote that you miss 100% mm-hmm. of the shots that you don't take. What is When you hear those quotes and you think about that mentality, what, what sort of comes to mind? I actually, <laughs> the funny thing is that I had my own, I had my own one. I always used to say I get an automatic no for every question I don't ask. <laughs> um and then I heard the Wayne Gretzky one, and I'm thinking, shit, everyone's probably thinking I'm stealing that. <laughs> Damn it, Wayne Gretzky. Yeah. But, you know, good old Wayne. Um, it, it's, I've got a friend of mine. He actually lives not far from here. Uh, I'm sure you've heard of him, Jay Abraham. Mm-hmm. Yeah, cool ass dude. Jay, love you, boy. And um, Jay said to me many, many years ago, he said, um, he said um, do you know you've got a greater I can than an IQ? And I really liked that. And you can have an incredible idea that's going to save the planet. But without action, it's a waste of time. And then we all know half-assed ideas with action have become billion-dollar businesses. Mm -hmm. So it's not the intelligence behind it. It's the action. It's the movement. It's the momentum. And when it goes wrong and it goes to shit, that's the education. (laughs) And then you refine that, and then that becomes the new intent Based on education, combined with experience, you're now credible, makes things just success. Yeah, it's so true. I get very frustrated when I hear someone say, oh, look, I've got so many ideas. And it's like, who cares? Just yeah, what are you going to do shit. about it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Show me one that works. For sure. Uh, relationships have been everything for me. They've been everything for you in your career as well. What's the best route that you have found to be able to connect with influential, high-level people as quickly as possible? Purpose and value. Um have you heard about the barbecue game? I have heard you talk about it before, but we can share it on here as well. Yeah. All right. Have you ever seen me talk about it? Yeah, yeah. So you know the answer? I do. Yeah, yeah. Right, okay. Then, okay, that's what I was getting at. I didn't know if I could I've use heard it in terms stuff. of like what would you bring or right, is that the yeah. one? Yeah. So let's, let's explain how this works. Yep. And I've done this. I've done this at events, on stages. I've done it in podcasts and stuff. People ask me that question. How do you get these relationships? How do you, how do you maintain them? How do you look after them? And I say, I played a barbecue game. 
And they go, what's the barbecue? And I say, okay, here's the scoop. This Saturday night, I'm having a barbecue. And I say to you, boy, you, you got to come over to my barbecue. And you go, yeah, I'm going to be there. And I say, great. What's your first question? Now, guys are shit at this. <laughs> so whenever I'm in a room, I always try to pick on a, a guy. I always go, who wants to play my barbecue game? You get the guys and the girls. Okay, I'm not picking on the girls because you get it right every single time. <laughs> Never had a girl get it wrong once. Guys, it can be embarrassing. Um, I did it with Brandon Turner, famous guy from uh, uh, Bigger Pockets. And uh, I, lo- I love Brandon. I love you, Brandon. But, you know, he, he, he got up to about eight questions on this. And uh, um, you say to people, you know, what's your first question? They go, where is it? Great question. If you don't know where it is, you can't come. What's your next question? What shall I wear? Right, okay, we're going to keep it casual. It's going to be like this. Do you, where we like? Oh, can I take photographs? Yeah, if you're not bothering people, but yeah, you know, take, okay, you know, uh, what, what time should I be there? Oh, okay. And there's all these questions. And then eventually, when the guys get tired of questions, they go, oh, oh, what can I bring? And I go, great. It took eight selfish questions to get one that helps me. And that's how people enter into relationships. Mm-hmm. You see Elon Musk, you see Elton John, you see Richard Branson, and you go, that person can help me. Good. I'm a selfish, self-centered bitch. I really am. Don't move without purpose. I, I just am. And the older you get, you get more selfish. I don't give my time up lightly. I don't give my energy up lightly. I don't give my knowledge up lightly. If someone's going to do something with it, I'm all in. Mm-hmm. But I'm not just going to leave it on a bench. So I say to people, you've got to look at relationships like a barbecue. What can you bring to that party? You know that they're going to help you. And good, why get into a relationship that sucks? Why get into a relationship that doesn't grow or challenge you? Now that you know that relationship with X is going to be good for you, how can you make it wonderful for them? See, the old old saying about, you know, get a foot in the door. That's not the talent. The talent is being so, so much value that they lock the door behind you. Mm. That's the key. So anytime you want to have a relationship with anyone, let's say for a mistake, I don't know you, mm-hmm. and I want to have a relationship with you, and I look at you and I go, well, hang on a minute. He's got a great podcast. He's got great distribution. I've got a book. Uh, I want to be on his show because it benefits me. Now, some people out there are going, well, that's very selfish. Yeah, it is. Okay, brilliant, great. But how can I make you desire me? And I go, well, hang on a minute. I've got a network. Hey, James, you know, got a great podcast. How would you feel if I distributed it to my hundreds of thousands of, of followers? How would you feel if you were on my show talking about what it took you to travel from one side of the world to another? Would that help get your story out there? Hey, you've got a show. I know some really cool cats. How would you feel if I brought them over to you as guests? Now I'm giving you a value library. Now you're like, oh, Steve, yeah, oh, how can I help you, Steve? Well, funny you should ask that, actually. <laughs> I've got this book. So you've got to think of it as value. And everyone I've ever worked with, I've always looked at them and gone, okay, I know you can help me. Yeah. But how can I help you? And I play the barbecue game. Just keep it simple. How can I increase the value of your life? And it may not be you. You know, um, people turn around. People love to default to money every single time. How much will it cost me to? If you want to see someone with money run away, 
Ask how you can prostitute them. Yeah. You know? How much is it going to cost? Are you kidding? Yeah. Money only attracts people that don't have any. Anyone that's got much of it, it, it's not a deciding factor anymore. Per minute, their interest is buying your house. Mm -hmm. They don't want to talk about money. They want to talk about impact. So you've got to look at the value. We did a deal uh, years ago. had a client of mine that wanted to meet up with Oprah Winfrey. And we contacted them, and they were like, not doing any meet and greets uh, in America. You know, some kind of contractual. I think this was before she went and did her own show. And they were like, contractually, can't do anything, you know, personally, one-on-one. -on -one. Group settings, maybe, speaking, and but not one-on-one. Not -on -one. Oh, okay, fair enough. And then I heard she went to Canada. She was out of contract. You know, she's now in Canada, Canadian soil. And if you go to someone like that who's got a lot of money and go, hey, how much will it cost? So we went forward and we went, hey, I know you're supporting the development of these schools. How would you feel? And I think it was either, I think it was Tula Packard or Dell. We were like, how would you feel if we put a new computer in every single one of those classrooms contractually for the next five years? You know, we were appealing to something that benefited them. Now, if you'd have wrapped the cost that it took for us to do that and walked over and go, hey, would you do this for this check? Should have gone, no. Mm -hmm. But the fact that we went, we're going to do this for something you love. You, everyone up there that you want to get involved in has a love and a passion. It could be your, your, the kids. It could be the school. It could be a charity. It could be you know adopted dogs, whatever. That may be a benefit to them to help them to enable them to help you. Mm. What Steve said there is the absolute blueprint of how I've been able to have every single relationship I have in my life today. You as well. Uh, do you know Keith Ferrazzi? He wrote Never yeah. Eat Alone. Yeah, number yeah. one New York Times bestselling author, amazing guy, uh, very good friend of mine. He came on the show as well and he spoke about you don't invite people into your mission, you invite people into their mission. Oh. And it's exactly what I just spoke about there with the example that you shared about Oprah. You're providing value for them to do their stuff rather than being so much like because you're a public figure or because you're successful, you owe me something or I can still be a dick, here's a check, and then I still expect you to dance. It just doesn't work like that. Absolutely does not. And you, especially aiming for a long-term friendship, which is like, rather than a transaction, how can we have a long-term friendship with someone? And that's the key. Yeah. And in today's world, we don't have a lot of friends. <laughs> okay? So you've really got to move with purpose on those. And you said it's a blueprint. It absolutely is. And no disrespect, mm. coming from two guys that action it and don't overthink it. Mm. See, I, I guarantee you now, and this is what's borderline criminal, there are people listening and watching this going, well, that sounds too easy. It's not, but it is, but you've just got to try it, you know? <laughs> There'll be so many people that will literally talk themselves out of doing what we just spoke about, mm -hmm. and we're sitting here as two examples now of people that actually did this, mm -hmm. and it worked. Yeah. And it ain't hard. For sure. Another mutual friend of ours is Joe Polish, who in the um, the book list that I mentioned earlier, where I mentioned your book, was actually two parts, was the only one that had two parts. It was the best book on being able to establish relationships. It was yours, and it was Joe Polish's new book, What's In It For Them, yeah. where he talks about always leading with value. And that's yeah. what I do. Every time I'm sending an email to someone or an audio message, before you pull the trigger, have a quick look at it and just think about what you can do in terms of elevating the value of that. And the results are just massive. He's always been good on value. Yeah, you know, huge. he's a very weird 
person. <laughs> um, very dysfunctional. <laughs> Um, weirdo. Um, but he has always, always, always led with value. And the thing that I've always loved about Joe is Joe won't enter into a relationship unless he can bring his A game mm. and his value team. Yeah. And so if he said, if he looks at someone and goes, well, I really want to be friends with that, but I got nothing to bring, <laughs> he won't waste their time. Mm. So he, he really does focus on relationships mm. and realize they are the currency. You see, during COVID, your bank never phoned you up to find out how you were getting on, but your mates did. <laughs> and then when the shit hits the fan, the bank's not going to phone you up to help you out because they only give you money when you don't need it. Um, but your friends will. So you've really got to re realize that today, relationship is the currency you want. How did you overcome the, the mental battle, the imposter syndrome, the limiting beliefs when you did start to connect with some of these really influential high-level people when you just perhaps weren't at that stage mentally as yet? In the early stages, I never had any imposter syndrome because I had focus. Yeah. You know, when you're driving really, really fast and you're, you're focusing on the road, you're not focusing on the speed dial. Okay, so I wasn't – funny enough, I wasn't intimidated. I do remember years ago – um, very, very early on. And I've always been a biker. Um, and there was me and my two buddies and we'd pulled up at this pub just outside of London at these shitty old motorcycles. We walked into the pub with our crash helmets in hand, just to try and look older than 18 to be able to buy beer. <laughs> um, and so we walked in and obviously looked idiots, but as we walked in, there was a guy in there and this guy was like the local Richard Branson. The guy literally owned the local supermarket and gas station. And as far as we were concerned, this was the Elon Musk of our town. Had a monopoly on your wallet no matter where oh you were. Oh, my went. God, yeah. The guy always drove around in a convertible, which is stupid in England. Um, always had the hot girls. You know, this, this was the icon of fame and success. And... When we walked in there, my one of my pals, I know I'd always heard his name, but one of my pals turned around. Oh, I, I, here's the dumb thing: I can't even remember his name now. And my mate was like, "Oh, that's so and so." I was like, "Oh, let's go and chat with him then," you know. And I went over to chat with him, and I walked over and I went, "Hey, how you doing? I'm Steve Sims. You don't know me, but I thought I'd just just say hi." And he was like, and he looked at me. He was like, oh, "All right, now bearing in mind, I'm a big ugly fella." So, you know, when, when I'm coming at you, you, you can imagine some people are like, what the bloody hell does this guy want? And this guy looked at me a bit weary and he went, oh, okay, then I was just buying a beer. Do you want a beer? And he offered to buy me a beer. Now, this was in the days when I knew I could get maybe two or three beers max and then I was out of money. I had just scored a free beer, you know, and I was like, this is a result. And, of course, you know, looking after your mates, I turned around to my buddies to go, oh, yeah, yeah, great. Do you want a beer? To, you know, get him to stump up for three beers. I turned around to my mates. They couldn't have been lent up against the wall any tighter if you'd have sat a truck on them. They were literally the other side of the bar, right up hard. And I, I it seemed to be like a long stall. And I realized the difference between me and them. I saw, I went for it, you know? I didn't have any fear. They saw, and they ran away. They were literally pressed up against this bar. I just got a free beer. Didn't matter where the rest of the conversation went. <laughs> I'd already resulted. 
but that was them and us. Mm-hmm. And I realized when I was young, I was, they were terrified of having a conversation. I was terrified of being them. See, everyone, everyone moves with fear. Mm. You know, we're frightened of being on stage. We're frightened of driving a car fast. We're frightened when we go past a bush and it rustles. We're frightened of launching a book. We're frightened of starting a podcast. We're frightened, okay? But fear can dictate your response. But it's how you respond to that fear that will help the response to dictate. Mm. You see, I was terrified of being a poor guy that couldn't afford many beers, and here was an opportunity for me to get smart. I was terrified of always riding around on a shitty motorcycle. I was just just appalled that I was always going to work on a rainy building site, that it just forced me to just run away to something better. Mm-hmm. Fear pushed me to take those chances. So I didn't have the imposter syndrome in the early stages because I was terrified of being my two clowns leaning up against a wall. Yeah. And even now, my life's pretty good. Don't ride shitty motorcycles now. I can afford more beers than I care. Um, But I am terrified of being in the exact same place today as I will be in six months' time. So between now and then, I have to try new things. Mm -hmm. I have to have conversations with new people. I have to push myself. And that's what I like to do. I do like to respond to fear in, as I class it, the appropriate way. So I didn't have space Mm. for fear. The doubt came in and the imposter syndrome came in when my wife went, you've already got it. And that's when I sat there and went, oh, shit, you know, now I better change. And there were a two-year period where I was dressing up in new suits and fancy watches. I bought a car. You know, which is unheard of for me, you know. Um, I bought a car. I just so badly wanted to impress you that I lost me. And luckily I went back to it. Um, And now I don't have that imposter syndrome because I'm not trying to impress you. I'll be the asset that you need when you need it. But other than that, I've got nothing to prove. You know, the placement of the fear is something that's really interesting. On the weekend, I went to an event solo. You know, I've got two young kids at home who've had some, you know, very, you know, minor health issues and things lately. I've got a wife who who works crazy busy. There was every reason for me to stay at home on a um, Saturday or a Sunday night. I forget what it was. But alone and, and to, to rock up to an event by yourself would terrify most people. But mm-hmm. my my fear is placed in I don't want to be inadequate and mediocre. I want to push my te- potential and see how far I can take it. Me rocking up to this event by myself on a weekend um, would terrify a lot of other people. But I had my fear placed in the right area, did that. I was able to meet one of, you know, was introduced to a mutual friend was able to connect with one of the world's top composers, like an amazing guy who we've now got scheduled to come on the podcast. And you have no idea like what one relationship can lead to out of all of these different things. That that placement of the fear you mentioned there, I think it's important for everyone watching this or listening to this to think about when they have concerns over taking purposeful action, where, are they, where is their fear placed? Is it about attending something? Is it about like their, their fear in the moment rather than the future? Yeah. I'd like to find the jerk-off that wrote that book. The book that says you shouldn't rock up to somewhere on your own. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't look like that. The amount of shit I get from having an eye piercing and showing <laughs> up in a black T-shirt. And I get people come to me and they go, 
you're going to that event looking like that? And you know the funny thing is? I'm going to the event that they're not. Mm. But now I'm supposed to listen to the opinion. I remember a friend of mine said that most people that actually throw hate at them can't afford them. Mm. So why am I listening? You never, t- never take advice from someone you wouldn't trade places with. Yeah. And so there's a lot of these rules out there. You know, don't turn up on your own. Don't do this. Don't act this certain way. Be like this. Be like that. I want to know where that book is. Because people, if I said to you, okay, people don't don't turn up to a place on their own. Who said that? We all know it. We all hear of it. We all know it's a fear. But it was the person that said it. I've got a um, profile picture. And one of the things, we have a, a Sims, Sims.media. It's a media company we own. It's a branding thing. And I always tell people, be exactly the same person everywhere. And so on Facebook, there's a picture of me with an old-fashioned in my hand. You go on LinkedIn, there's a picture of me with an old-fashioned in my hand. When I put that profile picture up there, I actually had people that I don't know came out of woodwork and they went, your profile picture shows you with an alcoholic drink. And I went, yeah. (laughs) Well, that's not very business. What do you mean it's not very business? And they said, well, it's not really the right kind of picture for LinkedIn. Where's the rules that say that? And she literally turned around and she went, it's LinkedIn. That was the response. (laughs) She just went, it's LinkedIn. I'm like, I know you said that. You know, It's the daft thing that people have these parameters. Who put those parameters out there? Mm. And so I'm I'm very, very forceful to kind of like go, well, okay, what's being said, but more importantly, who's saying it? And on a normal day, would you listen to them? So why start now? Yeah, it's like people who actively seek out limitations where there's other people who actively seek out opportunity. We had Dr. Mark Goulston who came on the show, amazing guy, and he spoke about people like Elon Musk and Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos look at life as an adventure to be lived, whereas most people look at life and the world as a danger to be avoided. Oh, yeah. I think that's so interesting. I always – it was actually Joe Polish that actually said this uh, statement to me. He said, the definition of hell – could be, it, the definition of hell is to meet the man or woman that you could have been if you had tried. Mm. I have one goal, one goal, and that goal is to die and then go up to, hopefully, the pearly gates. And St. Peter's going to be there at the edge of the bar. He's going to toss me an old-fashioned, and he's going to say, well, you had some fun, didn't you? That's my goal. That's my aim. <laughs> I think it's a pretty bloody good goal. I, I'm ready for it. <laughs> you mentioned branding uh, earlier. I know you're doing a lot of work with people on the branding side. What are the biggest mistakes that you see people make when it comes to, to becoming a personal brand and getting their message out there? Oh, very easy. They try to be you. Hmm. You know, they, they look at someone and they go, oh, I want to be really accepted. I, I'm, I'm going to be them. You know, you all see- the old fashioned profile pictures come out then. Hey, everyone's <laughs> going to be holding an old fashioned now. The 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 daft thing is is that in branding everyone wants to be unique. They want to be impossible to misunderstand. They want to be easily identifiable as them. And yet the first thing they do is conform to every other parameter of what their industry says they got to look like. If you're a doctor, a white coat. If you're in finance, a suit leaning up against a sports car. If you're a real realtor, you know you got to put a picture up there when you thought you were sexy. All of these kind of parameters that they put up, which when you meet them, is a disconnect to the person that they are. You see, what we've got today is a world of noise. 
and we've had it for quite a while now. People have become very, very intolerant to having to work too hard. We want to know the answer. Like, how many movies now? It's been something that's happened in Hollywood. How many times do you see a movie or a program that within the first 30 seconds, the person dies, and then they go, three weeks earlier, and then it goes into the story, you know? Or you watch a trailer of this happening and that crap, and you've seen the highlights, okay? Because we don't want to get into We don't like to wait now. We need the answers. How many people buy a book and then, like, skip to the last few pages to know how it's going to end before they go forward? That's the temperature of the room that we're in today. People want to know one thing. Can you help me? So when you brand, anti-brand, and I mean that, forget all of the prettiness. This is you. This is what you do. And this is the solution you provide. Those are the elements. And here's the daft thing. That's it. I'll, I'll give you an example. And I'll give everyone an example here. Get a desktop. This can't be done on a mobile platform. Get a desktop. Get a laptop. Open up your favorite social pages that you're on. Your Facebook, your LinkedIn, your, your Twitter, TikTok, whatever. Open them up. Different browsers. And then ask yourself, is it the same person on every picture? Because as I say, you know, on LinkedIn, you'll be leaning up against a bunch of books that you've never read. You get over to Facebook and you've got a Mai Tai in there and it's girls gone wild. Completely different kind of theme, okay? But now open up Apple. Is Apple different on different Is Ford different? Is Nike different? No. Your brand is you. No matter what sandpit you're in, it's you. So be you on every single picture. Be a current you on every single picture and then the bios is the bio the exact same everywhere are you a speaker on linkedin but you're a podcast host on facebook and you're a, you're an investor and entrepreneur on twitter how can you be different people don't confuse me mm. i remember i was looking at a house um over near topanga and i'd seen this house and i really liked it and i found the agent that was was selling it and there was a picture of her, and she, you know, she, attractive blonde lady. And uh, I called up, and, you know, I'm married with three kids. I want to buy a house. I don't want to date her. I want to <laughs> buy the house. So I phoned her up, and she turned up. There was a good 40 years between her and that picture. And she turned up in this Mercedes. She gets a very well put together, very attractive, mature woman. But I felt frauded. She got out of this car and I'm like, who the hell are you? And I looked at her and I thought, if you're okay to lie about what you look like, what else are you going to lie about once you start showing me this house? So anyway, we went through the house and we spoke to a great woman. Ended up buying the house. And afterwards I said to her, I said, your picture. I've seen your picture, you know, and I, I, I noticed... With respect, a couple of years difference between then and now. She went, oh, I love that picture. I had it done like, you know, 35 years ago or something like that. And I went, well, just to let you know my feeling, when I saw you, I felt you'd lied to me before you even spoke to me. You got out of the car. I saw you. And I'm like, she's a liar. You know? She went, oh, no, people don't think that. And I thought, hang on a minute. You're now telling me what I'm thinking. And, you know, even today, she still uses that picture. 
I saw it on a bench the other day, and I'm thinking it's incredible. You went and wrote some devil horns on the on the pitch on the bench. <laughs> yeah, a couple of little young goaties on there. Yeah. The some Steve wings. Sims goatee. <laughs> <laughs> but you today with branding, you've got to anti-brand. Mm. You know, no one wants to date you. Okay, they want you to solve their problem. The result. They do. So mm. don't go and get some fancy copywriter. Mm. Speak from your heart. I don't care if it's got bad grammar. I fix this. Great. I need it fixed. You've allowed me to be able to make a decision easily. Mm-hmm. Stop complicating shit. We actually openly say that we're there to create clarity in your brand. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. There you go. There's a little exercise for you. So true. It's so true. Uh, your new book's amazing. Go for stupid. It's an incredible read. Highly practical. You got some great stories in there. Who is the book written for, and and who do you want those people to be after they've finished reading it? Oh, great question. Uh, it's for anyone that's aggravated with what they're going to accept in their standards. Okay, we're all being dictated to by people that we shouldn't care about. So I want you to start having conversations with everyone in your world that you want to work with but also the conversation with yourself. Joking aside, I ride motorcycles. If you had a camera inside my helmet, you'd see me talking to myself. I literally ride down the road going, okay, Steve, what are we going to do tomorrow? We're going to do this. Because we've all got those little devils on our shoulder. Imagine if everyone's working together, your imposter syndrome, your doubt, the little devil. If you're all working for the same thing, you're now a little mini army, and you can go and get. So the conversations you've got to have are both outside of your head and inside. But it's those standards. What are you willing to accept? And when you can start adjusting those, people gravitate towards your standards. And what's going to happen to people once they've read the book? They're going to have a new line, a new line in the sand of what they will tolerate, what they will do, why they are doing it. They're moving with purpose. We lost two and a half years through COVID. You are not going to die And then some angel is going to come down and go, whoa, 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 James, time out. Do you remember those two and a half years you lost during COVID? Let's start the clock again. You get that gone. So you're now going to learn what you will tolerate, what you will accept, what your standards will be, and how to create impact. You cannot create more time, but you can focus on the impact you can handle with the time you've got. And being memorable without needing to have a big financial outlay was another big takeaway I got from that. Some of the sort of, I guess, sort of guerrilla, but it's not really guerrilla tactics. It's almost just thoughtful strategies of of showing that you actually care about people is the way that you can level the playing field rather than, you know, rocking up to a billionaire's house and and trying to bring a fancy bottle of wine (laughs) rather than buying like an amazing opener that might make a, um, a really big difference in their life and something they actually remember. I've always been. I've always been a great focus on the uh, impact has nothing to do with expense. Yeah, you know, when you when you think about so you think about you driving down the road and a song comes on the radio and it reminds you of when you had your first kiss with your wife. Okay, that's just a song being played. You know, so that favorite meal, that glass of wine that takes you back to a moment, thought is irreplaceable. And that's what you should be doing, especially now during the holiday seasons. Just try and find something that someone likes. And then what can you get that will amplify the love of that? And just focus on the impact. Impact is everything. Mm. Uh, This journey that you've been on, is there a particularly dark day that stands out where you were like, wow, I just don't think I'm going to be able to get through this or I just have no idea what my next step's going to be? Um, There was the time when I had the Ferrari deal and it was very well documented in my first book, Blue Fishing, when my wife actually pointed out not only did we have 
a successful business that went, oh, crap. All of a sudden, I remember someone saying to me, because I've always been in a black T-shirt and jeans, even back then, and someone actually said to me, oh, you're going to the, uh, the, the Ferrari event. I said, well, I'm actually handling most of it. And they went, you're going like that? And I went, why not? And they went, these are some of the most powerful. You're turning up like that? And I went out and I bought a couple of tailor-made suits and I bought a watch that was basically the price of a Range Rover at the time. And I turned up at this party in Monaco and I'm on this yacht and I'm on the yacht with uh, Sylvester Stallone. This was in 1997. So it was the Rambo Terminator period. These were the two biggest action stars of the time. I had uh, um, Sylvester Stallone and Arnold Schwarzenegger and me in the middle at a bar. And I was like, I'm Billy Big Balls. Look at me. I have got the event with Ferrari, with the A-list celebrities. And I got back home uh, to my house. I was living in Switzerland at the time. And do you remember when you used to get the roll of film, put it in an envelope, send it off, and then sometime in the next three years, you get your photographs back. And I got these photographs back, and I was sitting in the office, and I'm looking through these photographs, and I am proud of Punch. This brick layer from Leighton Stowe. Riding around on his shitty motorbike, he's now hanging around in Monte Carlo with A-List. And I'm flicking through these photographs, and this photograph came up. And I suddenly realised I wasn't in the photo. This prick with a suit on and the flat fancy watch, he was in the photograph, but not me. And I suddenly realised it was the best party in the planet that I never actually went to. And it sent me into a slump, and I started drinking that afternoon and i didn't stop i locked the door of the office wife was trying to get into the office she called some friends they kicked the door down and you know slapped me around and cleaned me up a little bit and i just could not believe i had sold myself out i had listened to someone that wasn't even invited to the party and they had dictated my depression they had dictated my doubt they had fueled my self-doubt. And worse, I had listened. And I went, that's never happening again. That is and I was violent. I, that is never happening again. You don't like me. Hey, that's fine. You know, you love me. That's fine. But you'll never be confused. You'll never be on the fence. You'll never be, I don't know what this guy's trying to say. I'm not sure about where that will never happen. I am, I am impossible to misunderstand. You'll love me or hate me, and that's fine either way. But I am not going to be moving around based on your perception of me. Mm. So I got rid of the car. Um, I got rid of the watch. Uh, it was an Audemars Peugeot Royal Oak Offshore. So every time I see the advert, I still think about that day. We get triggers. And uh, I got rid of the suits. And I realized that if I can't turn up on a, on a motorcycle in a black T-shirt, not your crowd. maybe I shouldn't be turning up. Mm -hmm. Yeah, what's the point of success if it's not true to you? So good. Uh, you're a parent, three kids. What are you doing to make sure that your kids have this same open-minded <laughs> outlook that, uh, that you had? Of course, parenting is a very, very – the toughest oh, journey. Say. Bar none, the toughest journey. Yeah. What are you doing to make sure they're open-minded and living their life? So a friend of mine, Kassam Aslam, he's, he's got kids. And uh, he said to me, you know, have you got any, have you got any kind of like, you know, they got younger kids and mine are all kind of like, you know, teenagers or left home now. And he said, have you got any tips? 
And I said, yeah, just ignore them because they're only going to grow up to hate you in any case. <laughs> and, and that was my parenting tip. Um, I'm picturing them all in black T-shirts and jeans and <laughs> the whole family. It's funny because I'm actually in business with my eldest son. And um, my youngest son actually helps me with the Speakeasy Mastermind events. So they're in the business. The only one that's not is my daughter, so who knows when that'll be. But my son could see the ups and downs of, you know, being an entrepreneur. One minute you've got a million, the next minute you're broke, next minute you're being sued, next minute you're being laughed at, then you've got a million again. You know, <laughs> it's a helter-skelter, you know? And he was like, I'm never, I'm never touching that. You know, that's like weird. But you can't change your spots. And he now works with me. And it's a constant kind of education to go, look, hang on. The problem you're seeing is you. You know, you're, th this is happening because of you. So there's a constant education to, to try and help them find their way. But then there's also that moment where you, that, you, that you've literally got to love them enough to let them get hurt. Now, I've said that you make a million, then you lose a million, then you get sued. Um, every entrepreneur I know has got lied to, ripped off, patents stolen, client banks stolen, had that business replicated. I had a friend of mine that got it, uh, actually did did whatever it was he was building, and then one of his team actually patented his product, and he had to end up buying it off of her, you know? So we've all been through these, what we call injustices, and that terrible kick in the bullsack moments that you just wonder, will you ever get over again? And you sit there on a Tuesday night going, it's payroll on Friday, and I don't have the money. How do I get? But you know what happens? Monday came comes around, and you pulled it off. And you go, oh, I did that. And the next time it comes around, you go, it'll happen. Mm. It'll be done. Why? Because I've done it before. And you become empowered. The good thing about making money and then losing money is you know how to make money. And so when you make money, you lose money, and you go, well, that worked. I'll do that again, but I'll avoid that a little bit because that's what put me in the shitter. You become empowered. So with kids, you've almost got to kind of like set them examples and tests, knowing that they're going to get a smack in their nose just to prove to them that their guard's not tight enough. Mm. So you've got to allow them to get empowered. I don't molly coddle my kids. Um, I treat them like human beings, uh, and I, I treat them as responsible human beings that should be susceptible to their own decisions, mm. uh, and they need to own it. And if you screw up, you screw up. Mm. Uh, so that's what I hope to do. Am I doing it right? I don't know. Um, my I have a very funny relationship uh, with my kids, Um we never say nice things about each other because that's just the thing. <laughs> but the other day, my son made made a cardinal mistake. He made an earth-shattering, no coming back from this, complete major capital F-up mistake. He went online and said about how proud he was of his dad with the new book, Go For Stupid. <laughs> and, of course, I saw it and I screenshot it. And I shared it with everyone. And I went, no kids ever say anything nice about their parents, but I've now got photographic evidence 
And and he can come back from that. I so. took the liberty of reporting your post as spam, son. <laughs> <laughs> he was hysterical. So he's like, oh, my God, mm. it was a weak moment. Oh, that's hilarious. Uh, last question before we move into the rocket round. On your best day, what's an affirmation that you would write on a flashcard that you could show yourself on your worst day? On your best day, what would you write on a flashcard to show yourself on your worst day? There was a quote that came from Jean-Paul de Joria, which I absolutely fell in love with. He said, it'll all work out in the end. And if it hasn't worked out, it ain't the end. Mm. <laughs> That's so good. So I good. love that. He's a smart guy. Mm. Well, let's now move into the Win the Day Rocket Round. Ten questions for some quick answers. You up for this one, Steve? I don't know, but let's go. <laughs> You're going to laugh at the first one. What quote inspires you the most? Is it the one from Jean-Paul de Jaurier, or have you got another one? It's the one from my dad. No one ever drowned by falling in the water. They drowned by staying there. God, that's good. Number two, morning coffee or evening wine? Coffee. Number three, what's one bit of advice you'd give your 18-year-old self? None. I like it when he's learned from being empowered. <laughs> Love it. What book do you gift the most? Oh, depending on the person receiving it. But I love anything by Jay Abraham. Um, I love uh, Roland Frazier's got a fantastic book out there. One of my favorite books that's really typical, uh, topical for today, Ryan Holiday, Trust Me, I'm Lying. Mm. And what book shaped the mindset you have today the most when you were sort of growing up in that phase? Uh, fantasy books. Mm. Uh, I love Sleuth. I love uh, um, Who Done It. I love spy novels because I like to get my brain cells moving. Mm. I think I have a rule that I read two business books and then I, w I read a fantasy book mm. um, because your curiosity and your um, desire to create images in your head is what's actually going to populate your ability to uh, creatively disrupt. Yeah, so good. Uh, number five, was there a vulner vulnerability you once hid within that became your superpower? Um, not fitting in. I was always concerned that I didn't fit in until I realised I wasn't designed to. <laughs> number six, what's one thing you've learned about failure? It's where all the education is. Mm. Number seven, if you could sit on a park bench and have a conversation with someone alive or dead, who would it be? Hitler. I want to know what the hell were you so terrified of? This was a short, brown Austrian guy that was trying to build a master race of German blue-eyed blonde people that would sooner realize that he had to be eliminated. <laughs> What was he thinking? Could so, have been a better way. <laughs> yeah, something was weird there. <laughs> Number nine, share one thing on your bucket list. You've done so much. What's left, Steve? What's left on the bucket list? Um, I'm not actually a very adventurous person, but I do want a uh, a plant set up in my garden where I can start growing vegetables. Also, that should be pretty easy to do after everything else you've done. <laughs> yeah, but uh, I'm not there yet. <laughs> and final question, number 10, what's one thing you do to win the day? Show up. Mm, love it. Well, there are a bunch of ways to connect with Steve, and we'll link to all of these in the show notes. You can follow him on Instagram at Steve D. Sims. Visit his website, stevedsims.com, and grab a copy of his awesome new book, Go for Stupid, on Amazon. Again, all of that and more will be linked in the show notes. Mate, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Time flew. Thanks, pal. Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Win the Day podcast. We want to hear your thoughts on what we covered today, so drop a comment on the YouTube version of this episode with your favorite takeaway, any questions you have, or what actions you'll be taking as a result of what was shared in this episode. 
And if you found value in the Win The Day podcast, leave a five-star rating on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You'll find a link to both of those in the show notes. It'll only take you a few seconds and more ratings really helps other people discover the show so they can get the mindset upgrade they need and we can bring more winners into the Win The Day movement. That's all for this episode. Get out there and win the day. Until next time, onwards and upwards, always.